Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's start with a prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sin. We pray that you'd be here among us today by your Holy Spirit, that you would separate the wheat from the chaff from what I say and bring your message to your people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So uh, this morning we're going to be talking from James 3 about honoring God by honoring each other. But before I start that, I want you to know that before I was able to get up here this morning, I've been officially censored. Now, I know that there are some of you out there thinking, okay, it's about four years too late for that. Uh, but I have been. I've been told this morning that I cannot name this sermon what I wanted to name it. I wanted to name it Flaming Tongues and Bloody Hands. I was told no. So then I said, okay, I'll call it Goodness Gracious Great Tongues of Fire. I was told no. So I had one more swing at it, and I said that I would call it What Flavor is Your Tongue Fruit? And they just said that that was gross. So at the fourth attempt, we are talking about honoring God by honoring each other. Now, anyone who's spent any amount of time with me is going to have heard me talk about my son, Asher. Uh, for those of you who don't know who that is, he was the littlest one at the front of the children's choir lifting up his shirt. <laughs> uh, Asher is like most other kids, you know. Uh, he, uh, let's see, he likes playing with a ball. He loves dinosaurs. He knows exactly where the cookies are kept at Grandma's house. Uh, he also has some quirks, things that you might not see represented as much in other kids. For example, we let him watch The Lion King. And when he's watching The Lion King, especially the end part there when Simba is fighting Scar for the throne, you'll hear my son sitting on the couch saying, come on, Scar, come on, Scar, come on, Scar. <laughs> but whether he's, whether he's like other kids or different from them, I still see him the same way. For me, it's like watching my own heart step out of my chest, grow arms and legs, and start running around in front of me. I know what makes him happy is going to make me happy. And what makes him sad is going to make me sad. And if he gets hurt, I feel like I'm finished. So I want you to keep uh, this mental picture in your mind for what we're going to do next. Because I'm going to do something a little bit unorthodox. Now, that's probably not a surprise. Last time they let me up here, I compared King Herod to Dr. Robotnik and sang a verse from Hamilton. Uh, but I did think that you should be forewarned. I'm going to pick on someone in the audience that does not know that they're about to be picked on. So I need a father and son. Yeah, yeah you who's saying no, not me. Uh, I'd, I would love it if you guys would come up here and join me in an illustration. Thank you very much. Right this way. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Come right on up. Phil, it's so good to see you. Thank you. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm glad you're here. How's your week been? Uh, not too bad. Yeah? yeah? What have you been up to? Work. Work. He's a hard-working guy, this Phil. <laughs> Looked like you've been working out, too. No. No? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you look good. You look good. Uh, I just wanted to tell you here in front of everybody that I always enjoy seeing you on Sunday, and you always inspire me. So I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. You can please, Phil. Feel free to go take a seat. Thanks, Phil. Bye. I love that guy. What are you doing here? Why would I do that? Listen, man, I'm going to need you to just stay away from me, all right? Because if you don't, I'm going to start telling these people all the crazy stuff that you get up to on Friday night, the, the, the unbelievable answers you give in Sunday school, all the trouble you cause. Just nonstop trouble, this guy. Go on, scram. Scram. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. How good of a relationship do you think that I'm going to have with Phil if I keep treating his kid that way? I'm going to tell you that it won't matter how many compliments I give him, how I publicly honor him. I could give him gifts. It won't matter if I keep being cruel to his child. Do you think he's going to believe anything I say to him? Do you think he's going to believe that I actually do like him? that we have a good relationship with my next breath after I compliment him, I slander his beloved child? Of course not. He'll tell me I can keep my compliments and be kind to his kid. I want you to hold this in your mind because this is exactly what I want you to see that we do to God. When we stand in this sanctuary singing his praises and then walk out there and gossip about each other and slander each other. So we're going to go through today's passage in James, and we're going to uh, look at what he says about the tongue. But what we want to zone in on is the heart of his message. And that is who you are and who the person next to you is and what effect that should have on how you speak to each other. You are God's child, made in His image, redeemed by grace through faith. That person next to you is God's own image bearer. And these truths should be on display in the way that you speak to each other. Last week's text, Pastor Tracy told us that genuine faith works itself out in obedience. And we're going to see this week that a tongue that expresses genuine love for God will also express genuine love for and concern for God's people. So let's get into this. James was presumably written by the brother of Jesus uh, to Jewish Christians living among the nations somewhere after the late 30s AD but before the early 60s AD. We know because the first century historian Josephus tells us that James was martyred in 62 AD. And the interesting thing about it among the New Testament letters is that around half of the verses in the letter written by James are imperatives, are commands. And that makes it very different. It sounds very different. It feels very different from the other New Testament letters. And on top of that, the author is clearly very influenced by the ethical and moral teachings of Jesus himself because a lot of what he says uh, on certain subjects echoes very, very closely what Jesus said before. Perhaps the greatest concern expressed in the letter is for the integrity of believers. In other words, 
that the way we live should match what we claim to believe. James talks about this in relation to how wealth is used, how the poor are treated, and today's topic, how we, how we speak, what we say, who we say it to, and what that reveals about what's in our hearts. So let's start in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So before he gets into his discourse on the tongue, uh, James uh, warns his congregation that are receiving this letter that they uh, should avoid going into teaching in the church because they'll be judged with greater strictness if they do. So that starting point could lead you to believe that this whole passage is going to be about the dangers, uh, uh, like the damage that a teacher can do um, with an errant word. But I think he's starting narrow before broadening out. He's choosing teachers as an example because they have such a big platform. Uh, they have all those people out there who are listening to their words and whose direction could be changed by their words. They're a prime example of the danger that he's about to highlight for everybody. A teacher has a lot of potential to change the course of the people that are listening to them. Think about all the silver-tongued cult leaders um, who, with their smooth words, have led groups of people down the wrong path. Uh, think of the preacher or teacher who makes an ill-advised joke at the wrong moment and causes pain for someone who's listening. Or the pastor who's venting their frustrations about a congregant, which they don't do. Uh, and is overheard and causes a conflict. Teachers have a bigger platform than most with all those people paying attention to their words. Therefore, if they are intentionally deceiving people or just letting a careless word slip off their tongue because of human nature, they have the potential to uh, send out the spark that causes a metaphorical forest fire. So when I was 19... I was hired by a Baptist church on the outskirts of London uh, as their church intern. Uh, and I had, at that point, I had really only very recently started taking my faith seriously. Uh, I had come to the realization that God didn't just want a little part of my life, but wanted me to surrender the whole thing. And so I was incredibly passionate about that idea. But I didn't know anything. Unfortunately, I wasn't aware that I didn't know anything which is just a terrific combination. Um, so I've gone into this role in this Baptist church um, full of enthusiasm. I, I myself was from a working class environment, but the church that I was moving into was in an upper middle class suburb of London. And every year that church sent students to either Oxford or Cambridge, sometimes both. Um, and... <laughs> I, despite being from 30 minutes away from the church was located, that meant that I was from an alien culture. I didn't understand very much of their way of life at all. It was a church of about 250 people, and they had a youth group of about 10 to 12 students, but because it was a small staff, they didn't have a youth pastor. So here comes the church intern, age 19, in the role of the de facto youth leader. You can see that this is a bad idea right away, right? I can hear some people groaning out there. I was extremely convicted that everyone should be fully surrendering their life to God. So when I came in, you can imagine my consternation when I found a congregation of teenagers 
who had already picked what college they were going to go to, had already picked what subject they were going to study, had already picked what job that was going to lead to, and were structuring their everyday life now to work towards that future goal. I asked myself, how can you fully surrender your life to God when you've already planned out your entire future yourself and are working towards that goal? I was really concerned about this, so I began a campaign to correct this oversight among the families of the church, to tell them to take a step back from their own plans and surrender to God and ask them, did he even want them to go to college in the first place? <laughs> yes. Yes, I did say that. <laughs> so, you can imagine how this went. I told them that they were planning their whole lives out themselves and not listening to the voice of God telling them what His plans were. I had the best of intentions. I was naive, and I was thoughtless, and I was arrogant. I just came in there knowing nothing about how they had made these decisions and just started spouting at them without thinking. I didn't speak to the parents at all. I didn't even nuance what I was saying by saying, you should honor your father and your mother. I just came in and said, no, you guys are doing this wrong. It wasn't long before one or two students went home and told their parents, hey, I don't want to go to college. That didn't end well. The parents were calling the elders, telling them to keep me away from their kids. As a teacher for those students, whether they were about my age or not, I had a position of influence, and the carelessness with which I chose my words caused conflict, uh, caused unrest, and gave the impression that I was saying, your parents have taught you the wrong thing, you should do this instead. Which, of course, whether I would have said it that way or not, was what I was saying. My carelessness with my tongue caused unnecessary pain and strife for a lot of people. So this is James's starting point. He's using teachers because they're a prime example of the problem of a careless tongue. But now he's about to broaden out that discussion and show everyone that actually it's not just teachers that have this issue. So between verses 2 and 5, he says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So now that he's started narrow, he's broadened out, and he's about to show everyone who's listening, by the way, you have one of those dangerous things inside your head as well, which means this is something you have to pay attention to, not just your teachers. Because as James himself says, anyone who doesn't stumble in what he says is the perfect man. In other words, the hardest thing to control is the tongue. It's the one way that virtually every human being will slip up. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And therein lies the problem. Our hearts have a direct line to our tongues. And what's in our heart has a habit of coming out of our mouths. The tongue shows us what's in the heart. 
And when it does, it can set off a chain of events, like a boulder rolling down a hill. James's examples are the bit that goes into the mouth of a horse or the rudder on a ship. They're relatively small things, but they have the power to direct how that situation is going to unfold. But the rudder and the bit in and of themselves don't, they're not choosing good or evil. They're just going in the direction the guy at the helm is steering them or the guy who's sitting in the saddle. It's the heart that is the issue. The heart is directing the tongue and the tongue then directs how that situation is going to unfold. I'm sure most of you could think of an example of a time that a tongue changed the course of a situation from your own life, let alone from history. But uh, perhaps a good example from history is the first time that Paris decided to compliment Helen, the wife of Menelaus. That situation went downhill south very fast. But like I said, there's lots in our own lives. So when I was in middle school, I lived about a half an hour away from school. My parents were both working. The school bus was a very dangerous animal um, in, in my hometown. So for various reasons, my brother and I decided to walk home. But the problem with that was we were walking home a good half hour through some of the worst neighborhoods in the county. And so inevitably, at some point on our route home, a conflict would cross our path. Uh, a group of guys would call out insults. Uh, maybe they'd cross the street, block our path, make demands, try and pick a fight. Now in those situations, my own personal habit typically was to remember that a soft word turns away wrath. If I keep my head down, I don't say anything I shouldn't, I don't pick a fight, I don't rise to provocation, then in 10 minutes, I'm going to be at home eating Doritos and playing Tekken. And they are not going to exist anymore. So we're all going to be good. But my brother had a different philosophy. I would see him open his mouth. And I would hear the first note slide off his tongue. And I knew that the direction that that situation was going had just changed dramatically. And I was waving goodbye to Tekken. We were going to be taking the long way home. One word can change the complexion of a situation. And after that, the consequences can be hard to predict. James has eased his, his audience into this by focusing first on their leaders and on their teachers. Because anybody can look at a teacher or a leader and know by common sense that if they were to publicly say something unwise, that there's going to be consequences. He's eased them into this, but now he's pointing the spotlight on them. And he's saying, guys, this applies to every single one of you because you all have a tongue. Every single believer has to be aware of the power that their words have and the potential they have for good or ill. And invariably, if something has the potential for both good or ill and it is in the hands of a human being, at some point, it's going to be used for ill. And that's where James goes in the next few verses. So if we move on there and look at verses 6 through 8, it says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, set on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So there's a lot of vivid imagery and rhetoric in there, but if you go underneath that, the point that it's making is quite clear, that there is not one person who is batting a thousand when it comes to the tongue. We have all said things we shouldn't and in moments made choices that hurt other people. We all have one of these tools in our heads that we can use for those things. But secondly, he's also warning that when we choose to use it for ill, there is a chance that the devil will take our words and make that situation a whole lot worse. So let's start with the idea that this is something we're all guilty of. Does anybody have a favorite sitcom? I know you're only used to being asked rhetorical questions from up here, but this isn't one of those. Yeah. Fraser? Okay, excellent. What else? Ted Lasso. That one came up last time as well. Not sitcom people, huh? The office. Let me talk to you afterwards. <laughs> uh, yeah, every sitcom typically will have that one character who you would call a straight shooter, who has no filter and just says whatever comes out of their mouth, right? And usually, in any given sitcom, that person is going to be most people's favorite character. For example, in The Big Bang Theory, it would be Sheldon Cooper, right? Doesn't really have much of a filter to prevent what comes out of his mouth. Maybe you know someone, you probably don't, hopefully don't know someone like Sheldon in real life, but maybe you know that person, that person who has no filter. Or maybe you are that person. I'm sure there's more than one in the room. We usually celebrate those kind of people. Um, you know, that's something that we usually really enjoy seeing. But uh, as we're going to see from what James says, that's not always the best thing. When I was uh, 18, right before I started the Baptist church, I did a gap year. I had a Christian organization, and I lived in like university-style dorms with all the other gap year volunteers. And we had one young woman who was there with us that year who was going through severe emotional distress. And it was something she was stuck on, and she really just couldn't move past it. And so at every opportunity, she would spend however much time you would allow talking to you about this emotional distress, pouring out her heart. And when you do that often enough, eventually you're going to choose the wrong person to pour it out to. And she came one day to myself and a good friend of mine uh, my friend was a man who had absolutely no filter. And so when she started talking, I was, I was really concerned about how that was going to go. But to my surprise, he said nothing. He silently listened for the longest time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And I thought we were in the clear. And then all of a sudden, he took her by the shoulders. He looked her square in the eye. And he said, you need to see a psychiatrist. You can imagine what happened next. She ran out of the room in tears. Now, we typically celebrate this kind of thing. You know, we label the people straight shooters and, and say, hey, good on them. They're speaking truth. But I really don't think James would celebrate it. I think whether what he said was true or not, this kind of thing causes significant distress and emotional pain to other people. James wants his audience to weigh their words, to consider how to say things, when to say things, and not to just rush in and speak out whatever pops into their heads. 
Now, some of you are more inclined to do that than others here today. And the others among you might be sitting pretty comfortably right now. Because you think, well, yeah, you know, there definitely are people out there like that. But me, I'm the type to think much more before I open my mouth. So I'm probably in the clear here. But the point that James is making is just that, that none of you are in the clear. None of us are in the clear when it comes to the tongue. Let's give some examples. Which one among you hasn't at some point in your life been in an argument with a loved one? And then something pops into your head, something you could say that's hurtful and spiteful and just twists the, the needle in a little. And you hang there for a moment thinking, if I say this, it's going to drive a wedge. If I don't, maybe we can draw closer together. Now tell me that you've always made the choice that drew you closer to that person, that you've never made the choice in that moment to drive a wedge. There's nobody in this room that hasn't done that. So the point that James is making is whether it's an argument with your spouse, you know, you know your spouse well, right? You know just how to hurt them, just how to get at them. And in your anger, you use that. Or whether it's maybe your kid or your teenager and you've told them a hundred times to do something and it's not done and you're exasperated. Or maybe it's a colleague and you think that their performance at work isn't coming up to your standards and you just say that little thing you have to say to let them know that they're not doing good enough. We've all had those moments. We've all said the thing that we knew would hurt. We've all thrown out that comment that we knew was going to put the cat amongst the pigeons and make a bad situation worse. And this is why James is emphasizing this point so strongly. Because as we noted earlier, the tongue can and will be used by the devil at every opportunity to cause discord, conflict, and strife. Consider all the recent uh, scandals around uh, evangelical church leaders. Now, anybody listen to the podcast on the rise and fall on Mars Hill, you wouldn't have been particularly surprised that something eventually was going to be said that shouldn't by Mark Driscoll, because the way he communicated, he was like a time bomb. But that's not always the case. Take Bill Hybels. He had written things, preached things for a long time that drew people closer to God. He wasn't a candidate that you would look at as someone who was eventually going to say something that was going to cause carnage. But an inappropriate comment on how somebody looks here, an invitation to a hotel room there, and the devil set light to his words and used them to burn down relationships, burn down people's faith, burn down ministries. Nobody in James's audience should be sitting comfortably at this point. But he's about to get to the real meat of this. Because there's a much greater significance to what he's saying than simply say nice things and Christians shouldn't curse. Watch your tongue. It goes much deeper. It goes to who you are and who the person sitting next to you is. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth water from the same opening, both fresh and salt? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. 
So that first verse, verse 9 there, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James is choosing his words very carefully here. How can we bless God and then curse people made in His likeness? What does that say about our relationship with Him? How do you think He feels about that? How do you think Phil felt at the beginning when I blessed him and then cursed his child? God dearly loves that person that you are gossiping about, slandering, losing your patience and temper and saying hurtful things with. They are his child. But not only that, there are lots of things about that person that reflect God. So I hope that you're starting to see how serious this is. There's a very thin line between what you're saying to that person and about that person and what you're saying to God. And for what it's worth, James is not alone in making that assertion. In the Isaiah passage that we read earlier, God told them not to lift up their hands in offering to Him when they're responsible for oppression or the blood of the innocent. And even Jesus Himself in Matthew 25 says, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me. Jesus directly equates how you're treating other people with how you've treated Him. God is a relational God. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally in relationship with one another and yet one God. So your relationships matter to Him. And you can see that in the commandments. Jesus tells us that all the commandments and the law can be summarized by love God and love one another. It's all about relationships. It's all about what you're doing, how you're speaking to each other, how you're treating each other, and how that reflects on how you speak to God. Whether you're guilty of the blood of innocence, or you're just neglecting to feed the hungry, or letting a careless word slip in a moment of, of, of anger, the point is that God's not seeing it too different than if you were doing it directly to Him. So what are some concrete examples from our lives together where we can apply this principle? For me, and this is the honest truth, okay, uh, I cannot control myself when I'm alone in my car in heavy traffic. I turn from a mild-mannered youth pastor to a horrific, snarling, monstrous beast. It, and it happens so quickly. And sometimes it's so bad that it's like I've kind of had an out-of-body experience, and I've moved over to the passenger seat, and I'm like, did you really just say that? That person that I'm, that I'm cursing about was made in the image of the Creator. And sometimes I, we, even do that when we're driving home after church on Sunday. I've just been in the sanctuary praising God Almighty, and then I'm in the car on the way home cursing someone made in His likeness. Well, let's say another example. You're upset with somebody, maybe somebody in this congregation. Do you go straight to them, clearly express why you're hurt, and be respectful by speaking directly to them and minding your words as you express that pain? Or do you first go to 20 of your closest friends who all affirm your right to be outraged, and then by then you're so worked up, you just skip the person and go straight to the leadership? Or maybe you've heard someone say something theologically that you didn't agree with. Do you go to that person and ask them for clarity? 
Or do you talk to anybody who was there and happen to hear how outrageous it was and then label that person a heretic and avoid them? What casual slips of the tongue happen among us each and every week, each and every day? Oh, did you see how she was dressed? Would you take a look at his beard? Did you see how their kid behaved? Hasn't he put on weight? Let's say somebody treated your child that way, gossiped about them, slandered them, said nasty things about them, sowed seeds of discord, and then they came to you on a Sunday to exchange pleasantries and shake your hand and maybe even ask you for a favor. How would you react? How would you respond to that person? That person is a beloved child of God that one that you're speaking about, made in His image, filled with His Spirit. They have dignity and value because of that, that you have to acknowledge in the way that you approach them. For the sake of your relationship with your Heavenly Father as much as anything else. But James isn't just giving this teaching because of who that other person is. He's saying it because of who you are. Look at verse 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? This is where the gospel comes bursting into sight in this text. You are a child of God. You are made in His image. You are saved by grace through faith. We should not see both blessings and curses coming out of your mouth. God made you His own child through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He filled you with His Spirit and made you an ambassador for His kingdom. These things ought to be on display through the way we speak, through the way we act, through our relationships. But each of us is guilty of pouring forth both blessings and curses from the same tongue. So what do we do? Well, the gospel gives us hope. As Pastor Tracy said last week, the Holy Spirit is in you doing His sanctifying work so that every day the distorting influence of sin wanes and the image of God in you is restored a little bit more. But sanctification is a cooperative process. We are, we are justified by grace through faith the minute that we accept Christ. And one day, when God's work in us is complete, we will be glorified with Him in His kingdom. But in between those two points, the sanctification process is something that we're supposed to participate in. We should be seeking God each and every week, asking Him to show us where we could better reflect Him, where we could be better ambassadors for His kingdom, behind closed doors or in public, in what we say and do in our relationships with one another. So whether it's how we speak to our spouse, our parents, our kids, our friends, colleagues at work, whether it's screaming like a lunatic at the other driver who just cut you off, whether it's gossiping in the atrium or something more serious like paying an inappropriate compliment to somebody else's spouse, as we allow the Holy Spirit to do His sanctifying work in us, we should be using our tongues to bring healing to our relationships, to express love, to speak with integrity, to show grace, to speak truth in love. To that note, uh, Lewis, 
I, I was kind of mean to you at the start there. I did want to say up front and publicly in front of everybody that every Sunday when I run into you in the atrium, it brightens my day. You have a great sense of humor. You read the scriptures. You take your faith seriously. The love you have for God is expressed in the way you are with other people, and it's always great to be around you. That person is an image bearer of God. You are an ambassador for His kingdom. James, Isaiah, Micah, the psalmist, Jesus Himself all tell us that when we dishonor each other, we dishonor God. But when we honor each other, we honor God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the privilege of being a part of Your body, the church. Thank You for the grace that You show us each and every day. I pray that You would help us by the work of Your Holy Spirit in us each day to make choices that honor You and to reflect Your love in our relationships with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.